I've always been a bit different when others uh, waited till college to have their wild season of life. I had already sown my wild oats by the time I was 16 years old. Uh, I got into a lot of trouble as a youngster. By the time my feet hit the campus of West Virginia University, I'd I'd pretty much done all the drinking I could want to do, and, uh, and I was an odd guy out for that. Uh, in my dorm, where I lived, um, I would go to the parties and not drink because I couldn't handle one, and it would inevitably turn into ten, and so I just didn't, but I danced and had fun, and it just sort of kind of was strange for people to see that. You know, it's like, okay, he's not loaded, and he's dance around like a fool. You know, they really didn't know what to do with that. And then you add to that that I was leading a Bible study and it became pretty well known that I was le- the Jesus freak in the dorm that was leading the Bible study. And what's strange about that is is that this was the kind of the opposite of what so many of the Christian uh, young people that were uh, at West Virginia University did. And so for some of them, I was a bit of an irritation. Uh, I reminded them of what they were supposed to be. Oddly, they were that for me in high school. And so, you know, turnabout's fair play. I was, uh, for some, a real irritation. One guy in particular uh, was a friend um, of a guy. He went to high school, grew up with him, and this guy became a Christian, started going to our Bible study, going to our campus group. And their relationship dynamic changed somewhat. They lived together in our dorm. And he used to watch me and, and kind of sneer at me. And one day he finally came clean and told me that I was a joyful fool. And I've been called a lot of things in my life, but that was not, that was a first. Um, what he said to me was he didn't believe me. He said, no one can be that happy. What he was implying was is that I was phony and fake, and I was kind of like, hello, praise the Lord, Jesus, Jesus, and it really wasn't like that for me. I had just been there and done that and had discovered Christ in a meaningful way. I can see that sometimes Christians could be accused of seeing the world through rose-colored glasses, which is an interesting saying. It takes on a whole new meaning when you go to a church that actually has rose-colored stained glass, but... Folks usually mean that when Christians talk about the world, they usually will they'll do so without a real facing of real life problems. Uh, and, and you can't really blame folks if they have some familiarity with Scripture because if you don't know Christ, verses like James 1, 2 through 4 seem strange. Count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds, for you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. And let steadfastness have its full effect so that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. This is James, the half-brother of Jesus, who watched his brother die, suffer by the will of God to save us. This is James, who was the head of the church in Jerusalem, who watched Christian after Christian, persecuted, often martyred for their faith, and he himself was eventually martyred for his faith. These are people that are not unfamiliar with difficulty. However, when the subject of genuine suffering comes up with some Christians, it is difficult for them to be sympathetic. Uh, Some people in our culture are confused 
when they see what seems to them a contradiction between a loving God and the prevalence of evil. And we can be seen as people who take that lightly because of either our, our profound view of God's sovereignty over all things, or there are some who call themselves Christians or are involved with a, a line of theological thinking that you can usually catch on the Trinity Broadcasting Network or some television station called the Positive Confession Movement, which means they actually believe they can change their circumstances through what they say. So even though they have a 104-degree fever, they insist they, they are not sick. And uh, I just think that's kind of crazy. And positive confession didn't change the circumstances of Jesus. It didn't change the circumstances of the apostles. It didn't change the circumstances of any Christian. God has designed for us to suffer. The apostle Peter, who was one of Jesus' closest friends, said this in 1 Peter 1, 6 and 7 about suffering. And this you rejoice Though now for a little while, if necessary, you've been grieved by various trials, so that the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold that perishes, though it is tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. So even Peter could see that there was a, a real value, a real purpose to difficulty, and it produced a rejoicing. We don't deny suffering. We don't deny that evil exists in this world and sometimes it's confusing and painful to think about how much free reign it has and that there are genuine fears in life and they can create anxiety in us. But what Christians are charged with doing is trusting that God is moving in and through life's difficulties. Through life's storms, we are told to trust Jesus, that he is extending to us an opportunity to experience his grace through an opportunity to grow. The New Testament writers knew this, and that's why they could say what Peter and James said. And today in our study in Jonah, what we want to see is the character of God and the texture of the story. And as a brief footnote, for those of you who've ever wondered, you know, how do you study the Bible in a private, personal way so that it's meaningful and it doesn't just feel like you're obligatorily reading like verse of the day? What is it or how is it that you go about, you know, walking through and reading the scriptures? What you have to be able to do is not just see the scriptures as commands or as in some people's case, they see that as a, like a means of knowing how to live or they're looking for something to tell them how to make their life better. Really, what the Bible is, is it's the story of God. It's his revelation to us of his character. So what you're looking for are evidences of his attributes, and so today is in that way an exercise as well that we're going to look at a story that's filled with rebellion and it's filled with uh, difficulties and it's filled with hardship and it's at the same time, if you look at it from the right perspective, it's, it's filled with pictures of God's grace and his greatness. We'll start with his grace. And one of the first things we see in our text today is God's grace through his pursuit of Jonah. Now, it's a discipline of Jonah. It's a, it's, a, it's a chasing down of Jonah. But in it, you see a love for and a care. 
Verses 4 and 5 of Jonah 1 say, But the Lord hurled a great wind upon the sea, and there was a mighty tempest on the sea, so the ship threatened to break up. Then the mariners were afraid, and each cried out to his God, and they hurled the cargo that was in the ship into the sea to lighten it for them. The Lord is the one who is said to have sent the great wind upon the sea. Jonah was running from the Lord. And God did not say, well, you made your choice. You have a free will. I guess that's the end of it. I'll do nothing to try to influence you. Like many in the scriptures who have come since Jonah, we see that God's word and God's will is the final determinant of this. God chased after Jonah. He loved Jonah, and he loves enough, loves us enough to impose his will on us for our good. And the really good news about God is while we may feel like we're running away from him, he's considerably faster than we are. And if we are genuinely his children, Scripture says that God will intervene and discipline us mercifully yet painfully if necessary as any good parent would do in the book of hebrews chapter 12 the author actually quotes king solomon from proverbs 3 verses 11 and 12 where solomon wrote my son do not despise the lord's discipline or be weary of his reproof for the lord reproves him who he loves as a father the son in whom he delights we see the Lord's grace and kindness in his relentless pursuit of his broken and rebellious kids. As I used to say to young people when I was a youth minister, the good news of the gospel is that the Lord will never leave you. The bad news is that if you're intent on rebelling against him, the Lord will never leave you. His continual presence in our life through his indwelling spirit serves to remind us that we can never flee the Lord's presence as we talked about last week. And I commend that sermon to you from our podcast if you missed it. Instead, he will use life storms to drive us back to him. We also see in, in his pursuit of us a love that says, I, I, I'm not going to let you go. Scariest thing in the world would be for a person to rebel against what they think is the Lord and then find out that they're not being pursued by God. There's no conviction of the soul. There's no one to speak into your life to tell you I'm interested in you coming back and being a part of my life or where are you? How can I serve you? How can I help you? Through his means of grace, God reaches out to us and cares for us. The Lord is the one who will create the wind upon the sea to show his pursuit of us. Now, there's a substantial side note that I have to make here uh, from verse 5a. It's a topic I can't help but address, and it will take up an unusual amount of point number one. And I want to point that out for those of you who are clock watchers. Um, point two will be much quicker. So, you know, if you're going, wow, he's just getting to point two and it's already 11 o'clock, then, you know, I understand it, it could be troubling to your noon, I mean. In Jonah 1.5, this is what it says. The mariners were afraid and each cried out to his God. 
this is where the rubber hits the road in terms of our faith working itself out in the culture in which we live. The subject at hand is theological relativism, which I'll define here as the contention that all religions pretty much teach the same thing, so it doesn't matter what you believe about God as long as you believe it sincerely enough, whether it's called postmodern thought or the simple declaration that all truth is relative, people often become theological relatives, relativists because they don't want to offend others. However, some just don't want the hassle of having to wrestle through and figure out what they believe. And still others are genuinely confused because as they pursue an understanding of who God is, they can't seem to get their theological bearings in a world full of competing religious views. In other words, a theological relativist doesn't want or cannot see the differences between faith systems. And this is problematic. It's problematic on a logical level, but there is a practical application that makes it problematic as well. Let me give you a for instance of what I'm talking about. One cannot say at the same time and in the same sense that they believe that God is a personal being with a mind, a will, and emotions, and that they are a Buddhist at the same time. And that's because Buddhism doesn't conceive of God as an actual personal being, truly unique and distinct from the interconnected oneness that encompasses all things. The two are incompatible. And when you compare Christianity and Buddhism or Islam and Buddhism or Christianity and Islam or any two religions, you logically have to acknowledge that their views often are opposed to each other and sometimes diametrically so. William Lane Craig is an apologist for Wheaton College. at Wheaton College. He says this, quote, A postmodern culture is an impossibility. It would be utterly unlivable. Nobody is a postmodernist when it comes to reading the labels on a medicine bottle versus a box of rat poison. If you've got a headache, you'd better believe that texts have objective meaning. People are not relativistic when it comes to matters of science, engineering, and technology. Rather, they're relativistic and pluralistic in matters of religion and ethics. Now, let me be careful today to tell you that we contrast theological relativism with theological pluralism. Theological pluralism is defined as people who agree to treat each other with respect and dignity and defend each other's rights to believe whatever they want, like we do here in our country. Yet at the same time, we don't pretend as if certain belief systems don't logically contradict each other. It's not a bigoting thing for a Muslim to say they disagree with my definition of who Jesus is. I'm not offended by that. It makes sense to me. They're being true to who they are. You don't have to be ugly to each other to disagree. In fact, I think it's the Christian's duty to protect the human rights of people of other faiths and if necessary to die protecting them from harmful religious persecution inflicted by anyone. Yet while I'm a diehard pluralist, understand that I would hopefully, humbly, suffer to protect other human beings while I simultaneously believed 
simultaneously believed that they are wrong in their definition of who God is. It is possible to love somebody and have a real disagreement with them about what they think and to think that they are wrong. And you know why I know that? Because Jesus died for us when we had no clue what was going on. He died for people who were theological relativists. He died for people who had no notion of what truth was. Jesus has called us to protect people and love them. But what verse 5 shows us is that theological relativism works only until stuff gets real. Then you don't care about your pride. You just want the one true God to hurry up and answer. Maybe you know what that feels like. I sure do. Jonah's companions called out to their different gods, small g. But as we'll see, when these small g gods didn't answer, like all human beings on a quest for God, they, if you'll pardon the pun, quickly abandoned theological ship to experience the one true God who had genuinely come to their rescue. And this is the second aspect of God's character we'll see. We see his grace through his pursuit of Jonah, but we see his greatness and we develop an appreciation for his greatness through high pressure, through the things that happen in our lives that effectively drive us to him, guide us to him. It says beginning in the second part of verse five of Jonah 1, Jonah had gone down into the inner part of the ship and had lain down and was fast asleep. So they're all suffering up top. Jonah decides it's a good time to catch some Z's. So the captain came and said to him, what do you mean, you sleeper? Arise, call out to your God. Perhaps the God will give, us a, give a thought to us that we may not perish. The adage, the old adage is that pressure reveals cracks. The space shuttle Challenger in 1985 when Carolyn and I were in college exploded during its ascent into orbit because of microscopic tiny fractures that existed on its solid rocket booster's O-rings. He didn't know that until this massive machine powered by the thrust of the engines and all that rocket fuel put pressure on those things and they cracked and then It exploded, and seven astronauts died. This is how it is for us. We may be walking along in life thinking everything's fine, and then pressure hits, and you begin to see things in yourself that you didn't see before. When life is truly painful, we actually have an opportunity to observe things about ourselves that we'd not noticed. In my case, God broke me down several years ago. I moved to California to pastor an existing church and failed miserably. Part of the reason was because I had for years been depending on my own strength and doing things in my own strength and amid the myriad of things that were the purposes of God in that season of my life, one was that he wanted me to see very clearly that I can't live apart from him. I don't have the strength to do anything. I was in ministry and had to be 
like face to the floorboards under a pressure that I never experienced before and feelings of a lack of control that I had never known before I actually reached out to God, genuinely said, what is it about me that is you're trying to get my attention about? What, what is it that I did wrong? Ironic, not ironically, that's the wrong word. I would say uncharacteristically. I spent years after that event looking at myself as opposed to pointing the finger at people who might have done things to harm me. I, I, I spent years asking, you know, what happened inside? What, what's going on? I was forced to do some real soul searching. And this is the nature of, of great pressure. It, it forces us to look at the great God that we serve for the captain of the ship, whatever confidence he may have had about his religious views before the storm started battering the vessel, he seemingly threw them overboard with the rest of the cargo in order to save himself. He wakes Jonah and demands that he start praying with the hope that God will answer, and this is where many of us get in life when our pressure-filled circumstances drive us to our knees. We start to earnestly pray. And I want you to know today that that's okay. I know there have been people who have said, I only pray when things are going wrong. And I would encourage you to pray more because God wants you to enjoy him and he wants to enjoy you. But that's precisely why you've been put in the circumstance of pressure too great for you to handle. It's so that you will pray. And God doesn't despise you for coming. That's why he's designed it, to drive you to that place. At that place, hopefully you will experience a grace and a love that will enable you to want to be back again close to him. God wants you to seek him in prayer. It's part of his sovereign design. Our sufferings are given to bring about a result. That's why the apostle Paul, no stranger to suffering himself, said this in Romans 5 verses 3 through 5. We rejoice in our sufferings, knowing that suffering produces endurance and endurance produces character and character produces hope and hope does not put us to shame because God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. And this is where I want to go Pentecostal, friends. You got to read a scripture like that and go, amen. I mean, that's great stuff. I mean, that encompasses the entirety of our lives, our desperate need for Jesus and the means of grace that is him pushing us and our character being developed through our dependence on him and a development of hope through the process of the spirits working in our souls. This is a challenge for us to understand in our North American, very comfortable society that we would look at our difficulties and not despise them, but instead look at them for what they are, which is an opportunity, an opportunity to see God work in our lives, to bring change in our lives, to point us to changes we can make that will not only benefit us, but Lord, everybody else in our orbit. I don't know if you've recognized that we've done some changing around here at the chapel. Last couple of years of I've really seen a transformation of this property in a way that's very exciting, and I believe the Lord's in all of that so he could be seen and glorified. 
Um, you obviously have heard we have another work day coming up to finish up that. But then we're moving on to another fix-up project. Fun, huh? Yeah, they really are fun. It's a great chance to get to know others. We're converting the garage that has been our office for five years, really, to uh, into a, a shared workspace. We're calling it the community room. And it's, we'll tell you all about it in weeks to come. But for those who work at home, this is going to be an opportunity for you a couple of days a week to come have coffee and be around others who work from their house but are tired of being alone in their house. Uh, we also know that's going to be a community room where men's and women's groups and middle school groups and all kinds of things take place. Maybe you've not seen on the other side of that building. There are piles and stacks of wood. You've wondered, whose workshop is this? It is Pastor Brooks's workshop. If you didn't know, he is a master craftsman. Uh, he actually, uh, quite seriously, he, he creates live-edge tables, and if he put his energies to it, he could make a lot more money than our church actually pays him. Uh, do you know what a live-edge table is? It starts off as a piece of wood that is just sort of rough around the edges. And here's a picture of what a... Uh, you get a hunk, a slab, if you will, and, and it just comes. It's not been sanded. It's not been stained. It, it, there's nothing about it that looks pretty. It doesn't look finished at all. It's just a hunk of wood. You see this from time to time. Well, guys like Brooks take these slabs and work them until they end up showpieces like this. This is one of Brooks's tables. Uh, it's just this beautiful thing. I mean, when they're done working on this, when Brooks is done working on this, you can see marble. You can see all kinds of variations in color. It's so smooth. I mean, you, you know, I find myself, when I go to friends' houses that have Brooks tables, rubbing the table. You know, I'm like, ooh, smooth, you know. It's really remarkable. But do you know how something gets from being a rough slab to a showpiece? Sandpaper. He also has this tool he calls a router that he goes across the thing and goes, taking off layer after layer after layer. And just like sandpaper grates against the wood and the end result is this gorgeous table, suffering is a painful thing to us that in the end reveals texture and beauty previously unseen. And this is the character of Christ, the image of God into which we were created, that now Jesus, through the renewing power of the Holy Spirit, is beginning to restore and renew and revive so that he can be seen in us. But the only way that happens is through difficulty. We've all got them. They vary from person to person. But I'm here to confess to you that I have not been one of those Apostle Paul types who's been like, rejoice in that. I've been like really mad that I have to go through it. And I'm trying to grow by his grace and the ability to trust him that this process actually is going to produce something wonderful. This is what we experience through high pressure, God's greatness and the goal in it is that people would see jesus in us in much the same way the entire study of jonah the book of jonah is a picture of christ in many ways there are parallels theologians have talked ad nauseum about those parallels but obviously today we see one clear one and that is that 
Jonah isn't the only one to have fallen asleep in the bottom of a boat. In Mark chapter 4, verses 35 through 39, or at least fallen asleep in a boat, this is really Peter's account because we historians will tell us that Peter has given his testimony to his friend John Mark, and Mark is the one who's written this gospel. On that day when evening had come, he said to them, this is Jesus speaking, let us go across to the other side and leaving the crowd. They took him with them in the boat just as he was. And other boats were with him, and a great windstorm arose, and the waves were breaking into the boat, so that the boat was already filling. But he was in the stern, asleep on a cushion. They woke him and said to him, Teacher, do you not care that we are perishing? And he awoke and rebuked the wind and said to the sea, Peace, be still. And the wind ceased. And there was great calm. Jesus is prefigured in Jonah's life in many ways. The call to the Gentiles, a resurrection after three days. We'll see in the weeks to come the sacrificing of himself to save others. And even the 40 days of ministry that were subsequent to those events. However, there are some clear distinctions. Some contrasts, some stark contrasts between Jonah and Jesus. The first is obviously here in this text, and that is that when the captain of Jonah's boat came to Jonah, he said, I want you to call out to your God. And when the disciples came to Jesus, they said, Jesus, help us. Jesus didn't need to call out on God. Jesus was God in the flesh. Jesus talked right to the winds and the waves. You can go right to the Lord when you talk to Jesus. As well, you see that while they both were in comfortable circumstances, Jonah being a prophet in Jerusalem, there's quite a bit of glory associated with that. Uh, Safety. Jesus was in eternity. He pre-existed. He is the one through whom all things were made, according to John. And when these two were asked of the Father, commanded of the Father, bring the word of the Lord, well, When Jonah found out he had to go to Nineveh, he said no and rebelled. Jesus, on the other hand, we're told in the scriptures, rejoiced at the mission that he was given. His response to the call of God was obedience. Jonah's soon coming sacrifice of himself was a byproduct of his rebellion. Jesus' sacrifice was in obedience to the Father. And Hebrews 12.2 says, Jesus the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising its shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. You see, Jesus is the better Jonah. He's the one whose sacrifice saves all who look to him. Jesus defeated death by being resurrected from the grave after three days. And now he lives to intercede compassionately for all who would look to him. If you have the faith to believe that he has died for you, that he lives for you, if you can trust him that he has forgiven you, the compassionate Savior who sits at the right hand of the Father is now interceding for you and sovereignly directing the tough times of life so that you will call out to him. 
as the captain of Jonah's ship or the disciples in Jesus' boat, we are all in the same place of saying, apart from Jesus, we wouldn't call out to him. And so we can genuinely say, thank you for the difficulties in my life. They force me to do what is best for me in the first place. Perhaps like the captain of Jonah's ship, you're ready to call out for God so that you won't perish. I want you to know if you're going through a challenging season of life, this is exactly why he is allowing it. The pressures you face, the pressures I face are designed to show God's greatness to us and draw us into this reconciled friendship with our Heavenly Father. Perhaps you can sense that God is working and moving in you today. And we want to give you an opportunity to respond to that this morning. So won't you pray with me?